0: Folks, welcome to our second uh, conclave of tovarish. Does anyone know what tovarish means? It means comrade. Comrade in Russian. Yep. Obviously Obviously, none of you saw the Greta Garbo film Ninochka.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Because well she was mm-hmm. Taurish. You don't remember mm-hmm. that,
2: Monica. I knew it, but I was yeah. muted.
0: Oh, do I hear my favorite <laughs> voice of all time? <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah. I, I don't know if you can see me though, I'm not sure.
0: No, Deborah, and I want to see you. Deborah is my special, 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 special friend.
2: Yeah, but I can't. Um, I'm not sure how to. Uh...
0: Deborah is not big on technology, but she does know her Shakespeare and she knows. Her BSL <laughs> I'm only
2: terrible at technology. I don't know. I mean, can
0: we everyone can
1: see, see you? you? Oh, you we can, can see. see you. Oh, that's
2: good. That's good. That's good. All we see is your head and your bangs. We don't oh, know. oh wait a second! If I is that better? That's
1: it. Yeah. But Deborah,
0: yes. listen. That did not require great technical know-how. Lowering. The Deborah was the general editor of my last book, and I have trial to- by fire. <laughs> I have to say, she pulled me or she brought me over the finishing line. Not just in the technical sense, but she was just an absolutely wonderful reader. And she's every author's dream editor. She just loved the book and loved to laugh. Yeah, <laughs> yes, yeah. And when people would say, "No, Lauren, take that out. It's too vulgar. It's too gross. Deborah, I would say, Deborah, what do you think? And she'd say, I think it's funny. Yes,
2: yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, the people who said there were too many footnotes, To me, it was like looking at the Niagara Falls and saying, there's too much water. You know, I mean, it's true in a way, but it's such a stupid thing to say. That's why I love
0: Adora, you see, (laughs) I'm going to remember that the next time somebody says my books have too many footnotes, I'm going to say, and Niagara Falls has too much water. (laughs) Yes. Okay. So I hope we're going to have a engaged uh, group of people today. Um, usually, we begin with politics, you know, just the current scene for like 15 or 20 minutes. Uh, is there anybody who would like to raise a particular issue? Uh, and if not, I will propose just a brief talk about a topic that's uppermost in my mind right now. Um, Okay, so I'm going to just throw out something, but we're not going to consume too much time with it, because we have a long agenda today with many items to discuss. Uh, I'll be interviewing, hopefully, there's always last minute changes. As part of the podcast, I will be interviewing Cornell West, Dr. Cornell West on September 18th. And I try in these sorts of endeavors to do my homework. And that means I've been deeply immersed in Dr. West's writings. And I have to say uh, it's been a very humbling experience because his mental range is really quite dazzling it's just a fact and you can't get around it in fact i was going to uh email deborah Maccabee, the person i was referring to earlier i was going to email her some of what he had to write about t.s Elliot mm-hmm. because i was just curious Does he get all of this right?
3: I'd like to read that. Yes,
0: the, 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 The degree of erudition, the knowledge of the primary, the secondary literature, it's really very impressive. And so it's been a very, as I said, humbling experience sitting down and reading through it. I'm not nearly at the point I want to be. And I hope I'll get to most of it before September 18th. In any case, I bring it up because in the last week, there has been a whole lot of criticism of Dr. West by some precincts in the left. Um, people who I speaking candidly, I don't have a high regard for. However, it indicates something blowing in the air, which kind of depresses me. So let me just cut to the chase, make a few comments and then hear you out. And remember, uh, nobody has a monopoly on truth. So I'm happy to hear people disagree. Um, I don't understand it all. And I mean this in the most literal sense. I do not understand the criticism of Cornel West running on the third party as of now. And I have to emphasize As of now. The election is a year off. There is plenty of time for Dr. West to say to his supporters, assessing how far I've gotten, bearing in mind and weighing the dangers posed by a Donald Trump victory, and this factor and that factor weighing them, at this point, he could say as late as October 2024, he can say, I've decided to throw my support behind Joe Biden, and I would urge my supporters to do so as well. But why, in God's name, why, in God's name, would you oppose him running as of now? 70% of Americans polled say they do not want another Trump-Biden presidential election. That means at least 70% of the American electorate are ready for an alternative. I don't know how Cornell, I, I prefer to say Dr. West because I feel he earned it. I don't know how Dr. West is going to fare in the next year. Nobody knows. I remember in 2016, When Bernie Sanders started his campaign, he expected like 10 or 20 people at rallies. You will recall, he repeatedly said, I was shocked by the turnout, by the reaction. Nobody knows how Cornel West's campaign is going to fare in the next year. What we know for sure is one, There is a very alienated electorate which doesn't want another gerontocratic election between two very old and one mentally incompetent and the other certainly giving signs of crookedness, Uh, Is there something wrong with our video?
4: Yeah, hang on.
0: Let's just wait one moment.
4: I do not know.
0: Okay, now now we're back. Okay, so we know that for sure. We also know Cornell West is almost exactly my age. In fact, we attended graduate school at the same time. He's been a person on the scene for 50 years. And according to one statement of his, and he is not at all given to exaggeration, so I have to take it at face value. He said that he, for a long period of time, he was giving 150 lectures a year around the country and around the world. That means a huge number of connections. And he didn't speak necessarily to elite audiences. No, he spoke to churches. He spoke to grassroots organizations. But that means he has the potential of quite rapidly creating what's called the ground operation, namely uh, people prepared to work for him full time, overtime, as they did with Bernie. So there are real possibilities there. And for the life of me, I can't understand why people are now a year away from the election already calling him a spoiler already saying that a third party can't get more than 5% of the vote, already saying that no third party candidate has ever won a single electoral vote in recent history, uh, and uh, saying that without rank, what's the expression, rank? Rank voting? uh, Rank choice. Rank choice voting, uh, it's a waste of time. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know how anybody knows what's going to happen, but we know there is fertile soil out there for a third party. We know that Cornell West is a known quantity. So I don't understand what's happening here. Most of you are too young to remember, but in the United States, it was always a given that during any presidential election, the Communist Party, the Socialist Party, they would run candidates. That was a given. You use the platform, what was called race consciousness. You use the electoral cycle as an opportunity to bring your party's message to the public, uh, uh, to the public square. and. The Communist Party always ran candidates and always quietly told their members, come election day, vote Democratic. That was the message. Come election day, vote Democratic. However, we use the, uh, the platform availed us by the presidential election cycle to raise, quote unquote, consciousness Maybe that's not the greatest expression, but that was the expression of the day to raise consciousness. And now to say we have to abandon that opportunity to, quote, raise consciousness and not even run a candidate There's plenty of time till November to decide what to do. But right now, you're supposed to be using the opportunity to reach people.
5: We are experiencing technical difficulties. Please stand by. We'll return to our program shortly.
4: So uh, let's go with uh, Samir first.
1: Hi,
5: everyone. I hope you can hear me. Thanks, Dr. Finkelstein. So uh, the left I'm listening to is fully aligned with you. Uh, uh, the the non-left is criticizing uh, Dr. West's candidacy, in my opinion, at least like you. Uh, I don't see everything. And the a bit of criticism that's coming from the left I'm listening to is his positioning on saying Putin is a thug, uh, Biden is just a liberal, milk toast, neoliberal, and uh, Trump is a neo-fascist. So this this type of messaging there is being criticized, but not his candidacy on the left. Now, these days, of course, we don't know what's called left in the United States. Okay, let's
0: hear from other people. Anyone else?
4: we've got okay samir is right here. andrew
6: Mulhern has his hand up as well
4: yeah let's go with samir
6: we went with samir that was just samir. Oh.
4: oh my beard my bad let's go with uh andrew. Andrew yeah let's go with andrew
7: hi i'm andrew uh i think i mean this is kind of common i mean people never forgave ralph nader for campaigning people in my state in 2020 which mean maybe. You can make a better argument for it people threw howie hawkins and angela walker off the ballot i think even now i just think that the kind of democratic party doesn't want any debate they don't want to have to face an argument from the left because they know that with the they kind of they kind of they're kind of relying on people thinking that they don't have a choice to vote for things that are actually in their economic interest. so they have to kind of vote for the lesser evil and that being said i do think there is i first i'll probably vote for cornell but I think you can't justify voting for Biden, if only for the withdrawing from Afghanistan after 20 years. I think that's kind of the one thing, because even though Trump negotiated the deal with the Taliban, I don't think he would have, I think he probably would have, Well, I think he had a lot of neocons in his cabinet, he would have pulled out. But I think this like pulling out of Afghanistan is kind of the one thing you can kind of justify voting for Biden for. But otherwise, I'd probably just vote for Cornell. But that aside, I think it's just kind of, you know, it's kind of how, it's kind of what you'd expect from the Democratic Party and people who are. Maybe call themselves on the left, but are kind of more aligned with the Democrats. And yeah, that's my piece.
1: All
4: right, and uh, Tayo here.
8: Greetings, greetings from uh, the UK. Um, I, I, um, I'm of course calling from where we had the phenomenon of Jeremy Corbyn, who was prevented from uh, becoming prime minister by people within his own party in the same way as Bernie Sanders, from my understanding, was also be- prevented from becoming the Democratic nominee by people from within the Democratic Party because he chose to run with from on the Democratic Party ticket. I presume he was advised by people, certain people, to run under the Green Party ticket, but he turned that down. Um, I am very much more hopeful this time around, because that f- energy that both those men generated, just by their honesty and decency, which struck such a chord with so many millions of people, especially young people, is unlikely to be uh, dissipated because he, um, Dr. West, is out of the reach of the Democratic Party. And I I think, maybe I'm being idealistic, but I do like to think that he will receive a lot more support and interest from the American public than people assume, uh, just because it should be clear to all those people, the, 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 the majority of Americans who do not vote, it should be clear that this actually is, for once, a real opportunity for real change. Um, So uh, a funny thing happened to me recently, Um, George Galloway has a show about about now uh, online as well. And I called him a few weeks ago to ask what he thought about um, Dr. West's candidacy. And George, who I have a lot of respect for, who I believe is very much on the left, then proceeded to give in his answer a talk about JFK uh, RFK spoke entirely about RFK which was um, surprising and a bit worrying thank you
0: anyone else
4: if anyone can see it we've got we've got one more here hang on uh Okay, hang on. As to unmute. Lynn, I believe. As to unmute. Can you unmute your uh yeah, can yeah, you
1: yeah. Un- sorry you.
9: about that? No, I just I just think it bears uh, pointing out just very briefly that you know I think it's in part a sign of fear and and, and just to acknowledge that they do have a historically weak candidate. And uh, it's fear on both sides. It's fear of the weak candidacy of the incumbent, and it's fear of a, a Trump. It's it's the it's the existential threat on the other side. Um, and I think both of those are are motivating probably outsized overreactions. And you know the same thing with the, the R F K phenomenon. He's he's doing he's pulling well. I mean um, uh, I mean comparatively well. And so he's he's a danger. And I think they're just. Doing the standard things that parties do of trying to shut down plausible alternatives, just standard ideology. Thanks. That's all.
6: There's also Daniel Talero now.
10: Yeah. Hi everyone. Um, I guess I just had a question and curiosity about how uh, how West bid might differ from from Bernie's, um, specifically on the kind of as regards the kind of division between the woke left and the economic left, from the little I know of West's proposals, it seems like he's he's espousing some things that maybe are a little bit more woke left, such as reparations, for instance. Um, I'm curious how that might impact his appeal, his ability to connect with people, especially in some of the demographics that Sanders did, like in the Midwest. Uh, be curious to hear other opinions on that. Thank you.
0: I think that's a tough question. And uh, I'm, I'm waiting to see how Cornel West, how he hones his platform. I think oh, that's a real question. Uh, there are two issues. One, how he hones his platform. And two, how he presents himself to a public. And there I think that Bernie Sanders was very successful. Uh, Number one, the most famous slogan in modern political history is not liberty, equality, fraternity, Uh, for the left, the most famous slogan uh, is the Bolshevik slogan in 1917, peace, bread and land. Uh, those three words encapsulated the strivings, the aspirations of the broad mass of Russian society. Peace because of this interminable war, which was in the which the Russians were Russian people, uh, Russian soldiers were being slaughtered, namely World War One, bread because of the hunger of the urban working class and land because of the feudal Russian society. Uh, so bread, peace, and land. I would say Bernie was pretty close to coming down with the ideal slogan. I'm sure he tested it many times until he finally came down to Medicare for all, Green New Deal, uh, abolish student debt, abolish college tuition, and... Um, a public works and jobs program. And he was very, very strategic. He never missed an opportunity to keep repeating those planks of his platform. Keep repeating them, repeating them, repeating them, like the Bolsheviks repeated bread, peace, land, bread, peace, land, so much so that 100 years later, more than 100 years later, we still remember bread, peace, land, or some people do. Uh, that slogan. And Bernie's, everybody will so associate from now to eternity, uh, Bernie Sanders with Medicare for All. Now, Cornell West has not yet refined a program, a platform. And it's a little bit at this point, it's a little bit too personality centric, namely Cornell West his beliefs, his convictions, his reason for running. Uh, Bernie Sanders was very careful never to talk about me. Remember his slogan, it's not about me, it's about us. And he would never talk about any personal details of his life. He said, that's not important. He would shrug it off. That's not important. I think that was part of his appeal. Now, every person has their own way of relating to a public. And I have to wait and see how Cornel West relates as a political person, rather than as an individual to the public, once his campaign gets off the ground. We don't know that yet. But I recognize that how Cornel West melds the legitimate, quote unquote, identity issues with the class issue, how he does that will be significant. I do not believe it's right that he should be expected to. First of all, he wouldn't, and second of all, it's an unrealist. An un fair expectation that he should jettison uh, the uh, identity issues which are important to him. Not because it's important to him personally, because that's not politics, but because they're legitimate. Imagine, for example, I'll give you a case from my own past. Imagine a candidate who is Jewish during World War II being told, don't raise the Jewish issue, it's divisive, which it was. In fact, almost all Jewish leaders went along without saying a word about what was happening to the Jews during World War II because there was heavy anti-Semitism in the United States, and it was seen as divisive to focus on Jews and the ordeal they were passing through under the Nazi regime. Would it be legitimate for a person calling him or herself a leftist who happens to be Jewish to call on them not to mention the specificity of the Jewish question? Would that be legitimate? Look, I recognize that as a complicated question because a lot of Jews on the left felt the most important thing was to win World War II and end the Nazi regime. And so on the interests of unity to not bring up the Jewish question because there was a lot of anti-Semitism in the United States. Um, I don't know how many of you are American. Uh, not that I'm just saying it from term, point of view of American history, um, but Franklin Roosevelt, who was the president during World War II, he had what was called the New Deal, and the New Deal was basically a kind of Bernie Sand. It was a kind of Bernie Sanders candidacy, and you know what the New Deal was called by people who didn't like Roosevelt, it was called the Jew deal, because he had a lot of Jews in his cabinet. He had a lot of Jews in his cabinet. So they called it the Jew deal. So the Jewish presence was being used to undermine Roosevelt by the right wing. And now, uh, the identity politics the aspects of it, which in my opinion are completely legitimate, is it illegitimate? Now you know my opinions are woke politics; I detest them. But should Cornell West be expected not to talk about the mass incarceration of young black people? Why not? If every four young black people, young black persons is somehow involved with the criminal justice system? One out of four, that's really criminal. Should he be expected not to talk about it because white Midwesterners don't want to hear about black issues, they want to hear about class issues? I don't know, you know, I consider these tough questions and I'll wait to see how Dr. West resolves them. I don't think there's a straightforward, clear answer to them. So that's my opinion. What I do know for sure is he's a very smart guy. He knows the lay of the land. He knows the country. He knows its people at every level from the most elite level to the most grassroots and beneath the grassroots level. And then I have to see what his judgment will be. And I think it's tough. Okay. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And do I see? Is that Miss Helen Sutcliffe? It's me. Hello. (laughs) Oh my God, I was so nervous that you weren't here. I'm here. You, I mean, our Group without you is like is like it's like King Lear without Sarah Bernhardt playing Cordelia. She was better as Hamlet,
3: actually. She played Hamlet. She was the first woman to play Hamlet, apparently. Right, Deborah? Did you know that? She probably knows more about it than me. I'm guessing. I guess I don't know very much.
0: Oh, Deborah on Shakespeare is unbelievable.
3: She knows a lot more than I do, I'm sure.
0: (laughs) Okay, so let's begin now. Uh, Can you give me the screen with everybody?
4: Uh, Click on your right screen.
0: Click on my right screen. Oh, view.
4: Click on the view and gallery. Okay.
0: All right. So uh, today is going to be, I hope to be a very fruitful class. I certainly gave it a lot of thought. And basically, we'll look at three questions. We're going to look at Frederick Douglass on the question of violence. Then we'll look at W.E.B. Du Bois on the question of violence. And then we're going to look at Norman Finkelstein and the question of violence. Not that I have anything of any profundity to say, but I have an incident which can uh, you be used as the point of departure for a discussion. So, let's get our reading assignment. And we're going to begin with Frederick Douglass, and he's going to describe what he calls the turning point in his life. Uh, as a slave. Uh, Just a little background. I've read this many times. My memory is not what it once was. So you'll forgive me if I make any small errors. Uh, This is this excerpt is from uh, Frederick Douglass's slave narrative written after he won his freedom at age 20 and uh, his slave owner, one of his slave owners, as it were, rents out Douglas to a- another slave owner who's notorious for his capacity to break the will of stubborn slaves. And this slave owner is named Mr. Covey. And that's where we're going to begin. Now, I'm going to ask a favor, and I hope people will be amenable to the favor. And that is, we will start with Helen, but then uh, is there a option for a queue, my techies? Steven, is there an option for a queue?
4: If people people raise their hands, I should should be able to 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 keep keep moderate track. track.
0: Okay, so we'll start with Helen, because we're starting with Helen. And then I will ask other people to read. Uh, If you have a good voice, please be communistic about it and share it. If you're a selfish, capitalist, egotistical narcissist, (laughs) you will keep your voice to yourself. If you are a communist, you will share it with others. So, Alan, it begins chapter 10, and mm-hmm. it says, I left Master Thomas's house. So, Master Thomas rents him out to Mr. Covey. Go ahead.
3: I left Master Thomas's house and went to live with Mr. Covey on the 1st of January, 1833. I was now, for the first time in my life, a field hand. In my new employment, I found myself even more awkward than a country boy appeared to be in a large city. I had been at my new home, but one week before Mr. Covey gave me a very severe whipping, cutting my back, causing the blood to run and raising ridges on my flesh as large as my little finger. The details of this affair are as follows. Mr Covey sent me very early in the morning of one of our coldest days in the month of January to the woods to get a load of wood, he gave me a team of unbroken oxen, he told me which was was the in-hand ox and which the off-hand one. He then tied the end of a large rope around the horns of the in hand ox and gave me the other end of it and told me if the oxen started to run that I must hold on upon the rope. I had never driven oxen before and of course I was very awkward. I however succeeded in getting to the edge of the woods with little difficulty but I had got a very few rods into the woods when the oxen took fright and started full tilt, carrying the cart against the trees and over stumps in the most frightful manner. I expected every moment that my brains would be dashed out against the trees. After running thus for a considerable distance, they finally upset the cart, dashing it with great force against a tree, and threw themselves into a dense thicket. How I escaped death, I do not know. There I was, entirely alone in a thick wood in a place new to me. My cart was upset and shattered. My oxen were entangled among the young trees and there was none to help me. After a long spell of effort, I succeeded in getting my cart righted. My oxen disentangled and again yoked to the cart. I now proceed with my team to the place where I had the day before been chopping wood and loaded my cart pretty heavily, thinking in this way to tame my oxen. I then proceeded on my way home. I had now consumed one half of the day. I got out of the woods safely and now felt out of danger. I stopped my oxen to open the woods gate and just as I did so, before I could get hold of my ox-rope, the oxen again started, rushed through the gate, catching it between the wheel and the body of the cart, tearing it to pieces and coming within a few inches of crushing me against the gate-post. Thus, twice in one short day, I escaped death by the merest chance. On my return, I told Mr Colby what had happened and how it happened. He ordered me to return to the woods again immediately. I did so, and he followed on after me. Just as I got into the woods, he came up and told me to stop my cart and that he would teach me how to trifle away my time and break gates. He then went to a large gum tree and with his axe cut three large switches, and after trimming them up neatly with his pocket knife, he ordered me to take off my clothes. I made him no answer, but stood with my clothes on. He repeated his order. I still made him no answer, nor did I move to strip myself. Upon this, he rushed at me with the fierceness of a tiger, tore off my clothes and lashed me till he had worn out his switches, cutting me so savagely as to leave the marks visible for a long time after. This whipping was the first of a number just like it and for similar offences. I lived with Mr Covey one year. During the first six months of that year, scarce a week passed without his whipping me. I was seldom free from a sore back. My awkwardness was almost always his excuse for whipping me. We were worked fully up to the point of endurance. Long before day, we were up. Our horses fed, and by the first approach of day, we were off to the field with our hoes and ploughing teams. Mr Covey gave us enough to eat, but scarce time to eat it. We were often less than five minutes taking our meals. We were often in the field from the first approach of day till its last lingering ray had left us, and at saving fodder time, midnight often caught us in the field, binding blades. Covey would be out with us. The way he used to stand it was this. He would spend the most of his afternoons in bed. He would then come out fresh in the evening, ready to urge us on with his words, example, and frequently with the whip. Mr Covey was one of the few slaveholders who could and did work with his hands. He was a hard-working man. He knew by himself just what a man or a boy could do. There was no deceiving him. His work went on in his absence almost as well as in his presence and had the faculty of making us feel that he was ever present with us. This he did by surprising us. He seldom approached the spot where we were at work openly if he could do it secretly. He always aimed at taking us by surprise. Such was his cunning that we used to call him among ourselves the snake. When we were at work in the cornfield, he would sometimes crawl on his hands and knees to avoid detection, and all at once he would rise nearly in our midst and scream out, Ha! Ha! Come! Come! Dash on! Dash on! this being his mode of attack it was never safe to stop a single minute his comings were like a thief in the night he appeared to us as being ever at hand he was under every tree behind every stump in every bush and at every window on the plantation He would sometimes mount his horse as if bound to St. Michael's a distance of seven miles, and in half an hour afterwards you would see him coiled up in the corner of the wood fence, watching every moment of the slaves. He would, for this purpose, leave his horse tied up in the woods, again he would sometimes walk up to us and give us orders as though we, he was upon the point of starting on a long journey, turn his back upon us and make as though he was going to the house to get ready, and before he would get halfway thither he would turn short and crawl into a fence corner or behind some tree, and there watch us till the going down of the
0: sun Play. next, who would like to go next?
4: Ms. Anthony is next.
0: Miss Helen Sutcliffe I'm nominating you for an Emmy No. <laughs> and, and an Oscar and a um, I won't accept <laughs> and, a and a Grammy
3: I won't accept I'm afraid <laughs> next
11: Anthony you should be okay Mr. Covey's forte consisted in his power to deceive. His life was devoted to planning and perpetrating the grossest deceptions. Everything he possessed in the shape of learning or religion, he made conform to his disposition to deceive. He seemed to think himself equal to deceive the Almighty. He would make a short prayer in the morning and a long prayer at night. And strange as it may seem, two men would at times appear more devotional than he. The exercises of his family devotions were always commenced with singing, and as he was a very poor singer himself, the duty of raising the hymn generally came upon me. He would read the hymn and nod at me to commence. I would at times do so, at others I would not. My non-compliance would almost always produce much confusion. To show himself independent of me, he would start and stagger through with his hymn in the most discordant manner. In this state of mind, he prayed with more than ordinary spirit. Poor man. Such was his disposition and success at deceiving. I do very believe that he sometimes deceived himself into the solemn belief that he was a sincere worshipper of God. And this, too, at a time when he may be said to have been guilty of compelling his woman slave to commit the sin of adultery. The facts in the case are these. Mr Covey was a poor man. He was just commencing in life. He was only able to buy one slave. And shocking as is the fact, he bought her, as he said, for a breeder. This woman was named Caroline. Mr Covey brought her from Mr Thomas Lowe, about six miles from St Michael's. She was a large, able-bodied woman, about 20 years old she had already given birth to one child, which proved her to be just what he wanted. After buying her, he hired a married man, Mr. Samuel Harrison, to live with him one year, and him he used to fasten up with her every night. The result was that at the end of the year, the miserable woman gave birth to twins. At this result, Mr. Covey seemed to be highly pleased, both with the man and the wretched woman. Such was his joy, and that of his wife, that nothing they could do for Caroline during her confinement was too good or too hard to be done. The children were regarded as quite an addition to his wealth. If at any one time of my life more than another, I was made to drink the bitterest dregs of slavery, that time was during the first six months of my stay with Mr Covey. We worked in all weathers. It was never too hot or too cold. It could never rain, blow, hail or snow too hard for us to work in the field. Work, work, work was scarcely more the order of the day than of the night. The longest days were too short for him and the shortest nights too long for him. I was somewhat unmanageable when I first went there, but a few months of this discipline tamed me. Mr Covey succeeded in breaking me. I was broken in body, soul and spirit. My natural elasticity was crushed, my intellect languished, the disposition to read departed. the cheerful spark that lingered about my eye died. The dark night of slavery closed in upon me, and behold, a man transformed into a brute. Sunday was my only leisure time. I spent this as a sort of beast like in a beast sort of beast-like stupor between sleep and wake under some large tree. Times I would rise up, a flash of energetic freedom would dart through my soul, accompanied with a faint beam of hope that flickered for a moment and then vanished. I sank down again, mourning over my wretched condition. I was sometimes prompted to take my life and that of Covey, but was prevented by a combination of hope and fear. My sufferings on this plantation seem now like a dream rather than a stern reality.
0: Okay, we're going to, uh, the next passage is beautiful, but we're going to skip it, just Just go go to, to, uh, uh, I have have already already intimated, So, two more paragraphs. paragraphs. Um, Can you,
4: can you look at your, your email and your phone, please? Uh, Yeah.
0: Are you talking to me?
4: No, that is to me. Sorry. uh...
0: So go to, I have already intimated.
11: Okay. I've already intimated that my condition was much worse during the first six months of my stay at Mr. Covey's than in the last six. The circumstances leading to the change in Mr. Covey's course toward me form an epoch in my humble history. You have seen how a man was made a slave. You shall see how a slave was made a man. On one of the hottest days of the month of August, 1833, Bill Smith, William Hughes, a slave named Eli and myself were engaged in fanning wheat. Hughes was clearing the fanned wheat from before the fan. Eli was turning, Smith was feeding, and I was carrying wheat to the fan. The work was simple, requiring strength rather than intellect. Yet, for one entirely unused to such work, it came very hard. About three o'clock of that day, I broke down. My strength failed me. I was seized with a violent aching of the head, attended with extreme dizziness. I trembled in every limb. Finding what was coming, I nerved myself up, feeling it would never do to stop work. I stood as long as I could stagger to the hopper with grain. When I could stand no longer, I fell, and felt as if held down by an immense weight. The fan, of course, stopped. Everyone had his own work to do, and no one could do the work of the other and have his own go at the same time.
0: Okay, listen. What's your name? Anthony. Anthony and Helen, I see your show. <laughs> We're absolutely incredible. Simple as that. Who wants to make another go at it?
6: We have Teo Aluko.
0: It starts with Mr. Covey was at the house.
8: Uh, page 77 I see, is it? before or after that?
0: A different version. Uh, Anyone who's using... uh, The
6: the downloaded version. version.
0: Yeah, the downloaded version. It's
6: 73 on the downloaded version. 73. Uh,
8: Mr. Covey, yes. Right. Mr. Covey was at the house about 100 yards from the treading yard where we were fanning. On hearing the fan stop, he left immediately and came to the spot where we were. He hastily inquired what the matter was. Bill answered that I was sick and there was no one to bring wheat to the fan. I had by this time crawled away under the side of the post and rail fence by which the yard was enclosed, hoping to find relief by getting out of the sun. He then asked where I was. He was told by one of the hands. He came to the spot and after looking at me for a while, he asked me what was the matter. I told him as well as I could, for I scarce had the strength to speak. He then gave me a savage kick on the side and told me to get up. I tried to do so, but fell back in the attempt. He gave me another kick and again he told me to rise. I again tried and succeeded in gaining my feet, but stooping to get the tub with which I was feeding the fan, I again staggered and fell. While down in this situation, Mr. Covey took up the hickory slat with which Hughes had been striking off the half-bushel measure, and with it he gave me a heavy blow upon the head, making a large wound, and the blood ran freely, and with this again told me to get up. I made no effort to comply, having now made up my mind to let him do his worst. In a short time after receiving this blow, my head grew better. Mr. Covey had now left me to my fate. At this moment, I resolved for the first time to go to my master, enter a complaint, and ask his protection. In order to do this, I must that afternoon walk seven miles And this, under the circumstances, was truly a severe undertaking. I was exceedingly feeble, made so as much by the kicks and blows which I received, as by the severe fit of sickness to which I had been subjected. I, however, watched my chance while Covey was looking in an opposite direction and started for St. Michael's. I succeeded in getting a considerable distance of my way to the woods when Covey discovered me and called after me to to come back, threatening what he would do if I did not come. I disregarded both his calls and his threats and made my way to the woods as fast as my feeble state would allow. And thinking I might be overhauled by him if I kept the road, I walked through the woods, keeping far enough from the road to avoid detection and near enough to prevent losing my way i had gone not i had not gone far before my little strength again failed me i could not go i could go no further i fell down and lay for a considerable time the blood was yet oozing from the wound on my head for a time i thought i should bleed to death and think now that i should have done so but that the blood so matted my hair as to stop the wound. After lying there about three quarters of an hour, I nerved myself up again and started on my way, through bogs and briars, barefooted and bareheaded, tearing my feet sometimes at nearly every step. And after a journey of about seven miles, occupying some five hours to perform it, I arrived at master's store. I then presented an appearance enough to affect any heart, any but the heart of a lion.
0: Of iron, heart of iron.
8: Heart of iron. From the crown of my head to my feet, I was covered with blood. My hair was all clotted with dust and blood. My shirt was stiff with blood. My legs and feet were torn in sundry places with briars and thorns, and were also covered with blood. I suppose I looked like a man who had escaped a a den of wild beasts and barely escaped them. In this state, I appeared before my master, humbly entreating him to interpose his authority for my protection. I told him all the circumstances as well as I could, and it seemed, as I spoke, at times to affect him. He would then walk the floor, and seek to justify Covey by saying he expected I deserved it. He asked me what I wanted. I told him to let him get to to let me get a new home, that as I, that as sure as I lived with Mr. Covey again, I should live with but to die with him. That Covey would surely kill me. He was in a fair way for it. Master Thomas ridiculed the idea that there was any danger of Mr. Covey's killing me and said that he knew Mr. Covey, that he was a good man and that he could not think of taking me away, taking me from him. That, should he do so, he would lose the whole year's wages, that I belong to Mr. Covey for one year and that I must go back to him come what might, and that I must not trouble him with any more stories, or that he might himself get hold of me. After threatening me thus, he gave me a very large dose of salts, telling me that I might remain in St. Michael's that night, it being quite late, but that I must be off back to Mr. Covey's earlier early in the morning, and that if I did not, he would get hold of me, which meant that he would we- whip me. I remained all night, and according to his orders, I started off to Covey's in the morning, Saturday morning, wearied in body and broken in spirit. I got no supper that night or breakfast that morning. I reached Covey's about nine o'clock, and just as I was getting over the fence that divided Mr. Kemp's fields from ours, ran Covey with his cow skin to give me another whipping. Before he reached me, I succeeded in getting into the to the cornfield, and as the corn was very high, it had afforded me the means of hiding. He seemed very angry and searched for me a long time. My behavior was altogether unaccountable. He finally gave up the chase, thinking, I suppose, that I must come home for something to eat. He would give himself no further trouble in looking for me. I spent that day mostly in the woods, having the alternative before me to go home and be whipped to death or stay in the woods and be starved to death. That night I fell in with Sandy Jenkins, a slave with whom I was somewhat acquainted. Sandy had a free wife who lived about four miles from Mr. Covey's and it being Saturday, he was on his way to see her. I told him my circumstances and he very kindly invited me to go home with him. I went home with him and talked this whole matter over and got his advice as to what course it was best for me to pursue. I found Sandy an old advisor. He told me with great solemnity, I must go back to Covey, but that before I went, I must go with him into another part of the woods where there was a certain route, which if I was to take some of it with me, carrying it always on my right side, would render it impossible for Mr. Covey or any other white man to whip me. He said he had carried it for years, and since he had done so, he had never received a blow and never expected to while he he carried it. I at first rejected the idea that the simple carrying of a root in my pocket would have any effect as, as he had said, and was not disposed to take it. Sandy impressed the necessity with much earnestness, telling me it could do no harm if it did no good. To please him, I at length took the route, and according to his direction, Sorry, just for use and according to his direction, carried it on my right side. This was Sunday morning. I immediately started for home, and upon entering the yard gate, out came Mr. Covey on his way to a meeting. He spoke to me very kindly, made me drive the pigs from a lot nearby, and passed on towards the church. Now, this singular conduct of Mr. Covey really made me begin to think that there was something in the route which Sandy had given me and had it been any other day than sunday i could have attributed the conduct to no other cause than the influence of that root and as it was i was half inclined to think that the root to be to think the root to be something more than i had first taken it to be all went well till monday morning on this morning the virtue of the root was fully tested long after daylight Long before daylight, I was called to go and rub, curry, and feed the horses. I obeyed and was glad to obey. But whilst thus engaged, whilst in the act of throwing down some blades from the loft, Mister Covey entered the stable with a long rope, and just as I was about—just as I was half out of the loft—he caught hold of my legs and was about tying me. As soon as I found what he was up to, I gave a sudden spring. And as I did so, he holding to my legs, I was brought sprawling onto the t- stable floor. Mr. Covey seemed now to think he had me and could do what he pleased. But at this moment, from whence came the spirit I don't know, I resolved to fight. And suiting my action to the resolution, I seized Covey hard by the throat. And as I did so, I rose. He held unto me and I to him. My resistance was so entirely unexpected that Covey seemed to be taken aback. He trembled like a leaf. This gave me assurance, and I held him uneasy, causing the blood to run where I touched him with the ends of my fingers. Mr. Covey soon called out to Hughes for help. Hughes came, and while Covey held me, attempted to tie my right hand. While he was in the act of doing so, I watched my chance and gave him a heavy kick close under the ribs. This kick fairly sickened Hughes so that he left me in the hands of Mr. Covey. This kick had the effect of not only weakening Hughes, but Covey also. When he saw Hughes bending over with pain, his courage quailed. He asked me if I meant to persist in my resistance. I told him I did, come what might, that he had used me like a brute for six months and that I was determined to be used so no longer. With that, he strove to drag me to a stick that was lying just out of the stable door. He meant to knock me down. But just as he was leaning over to get the stick, I seized him with both both hands by his collar and brought him by a sudden snatch to the ground. By this time, Bill came. Covey called upon him for assistance. Bill wanted to know what he could do. Covey said, take hold of him, take hold of him. Bill said his masters hired him out to work and not to help to whip me. So he, he, he left Covey and myself to fight our own battle out. We were at it for nearly two hours. Covey at length let me go, puffing and blowing at a great rate, saying that if I had not resisted, he would, have, he would not have whipped me half so much. The truth was that had he not, oh gosh, sorry, it's just disappeared. Yep. Truth was, had he not whipped me at all, I considered him as getting entirely the worst end of the bargain for he had drawn no blood from me, but I had from him. The whole six months afterwards that I spent with Mr. Covey, he never laid the weight of his finger upon me in anger. He would occasionally say, he didn't want to get hold of me again. No, thought I, you need not, for you will not, you will come off worse than you did before. Keep going. This battle with Mr. Covey was the turning point of my career as a slave. It rekindled the few expiring embers of freedom and revived within me a sense of my own manhood. It recalled the departed self-confidence and inspired me again with the determination to be free. The gratification afforded by the triumph was a full compensation for whatever else might follow, even death itself. He only can understand the deep satisfaction which I experienced. Who has himself repelled by force the bloody arm of slavery? I felt as i never felt before. It was a glorious resurrection from the tomb of slavery to the heaven of freedom. My long crushed spirit rose; cowardice departed, bold defiance took its place, and now I resolved, and I now resolved that, however long I might remain a slave in form, the day had passed forever when I could be a slave in fact. Mm. I did not hesitate to to let it be known of me that the white man who expected to succeed in whipping must also succeed in killing me. From this time, I was never again what might be called fairly, fairly whipped, though I remained a slave four years afterwards. I had several fights, but was never whipped. It was for a long time a matter of surprise to me why Mr. Covey did not immediately have me taken by the constable to the whipping post, and there regularly whipped for the crime of raising my hands against a white man in defence of myself. And the only explanation I can now think of does not entirely satisfy me, but such as it is, I will give it. Mr. Covey enjoyed the most unbounded reputation for being a first-rate overseer and Negro breaker. It was of considerable importance to him. That reputation was at stake. And had he sent me, a boy of about 16 years old, to the public whipping post, his reputation would have been lost. So, to save his reputation, he suffered me to go unpunished.
0: Okay. Well, between the three of you, I think I've discovered an acting troupe. This is quite exciting. I think next week we're going to do Waiting for (laughs) Goudot. That was pretty. You know, it's the, if you don't mind me saying, it's the freaking Brits. (laughs) We just know how to talk better. It's just true. I mean, we have to accept facts. There's something about British English.
8: Well, it's uh, Nigerian British English. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever.
0: (laughs) That just proves my point more, whatever my point is. (laughs) Well, that is. We're going to call that the foundational text from which we're going to uh, build as we proceed. The first and most obvious question is, did he have to commit an act of violence in order to liberate himself? That clearly is what he's conveying here. Uh, you'll forgive me for going back, but now I'll play the teacher's role and just look at one paragraph. The paragraph that be- begins, this battle with Mr. Covey was the turning point in my career as a slave. It rekindled the few expiring embers of freedom it revived within me a sense of my own manhood. It recalled the departed self confidence and inspired me again with a, term, a determination to be free. The gratification afforded by the triumph was a full compensation for whatever else might follow, even death itself. He only can expe- understand the deep satisfaction which I experienced who has himself repelled by force the bloody arm of slavery. I felt as I never felt before. It was a glorious resurrection from the tomb of slavery to the heaven of freedom. I won't continue because we've just read it, but obviously this particular passage places Douglas in a certain camp, ideological camp, political camp, the Malcolm X camp versus the Martin Luther King camp, that there is a certain dignity to be had, a certain personal dignity and integrity to be had from having violently inflicted violence on his oppressor. And the question obviously, in my opinion, obviously is, was violence, not that I'm saying anything positive or negative about violence. I'm not a pacifist, I don't pretend to be I'm just asking a question was the only way available to douglas for restoring his personal dignity for emancipating his mind was violence the only option because if it was the only option there are a few conclusions one draws one Given the physical capacities of men versus women, it's not an option easily available to a woman to have done to Colby what Douglas did. Secondly, it's not an option available to most men because, as Douglas says, it was only by some weird fluke that he managed to live. Otherwise, he would have been at that whipping post every day until probably he expired. So Douglas says it's only a fluke that I managed to get away with it. So it's not really, so Douglass' emancipatory act is barely available to anybody by Douglass' own reckoning. So where does that leave everybody else? That they don't, they can't, experience the realization the gratification that he was able to experience he would nobody else or barely anybody else could experience that glorious resurrection from the tomb of slavery to the heaven of freedom well what do you think i want to just ask one other question you know we all go into these texts with a certain amount of skepticism. Now it happens that Douglas um, was constantly challenged because he named names and people would say that didn't really happen, that didn't really happen, and Douglas always was able to answer. There was one line that caused a certain skepticism in me, and I would like to hear from you. Your response, he says, quote, we were at it for nearly two hours. I can't imagine them fighting for two hours. Is that wrong of me to be skeptical about that? But otherwise, how do you react to the passage that his passing from the state of Mental slavery to spiritual emancipation had to had to be via this fight where he discovers his manhood. How do you react to that?
6: Looks like we got Gavin um had his hand up first, I believe.
9: Mm -hmm.
6: And then Andrew.
9: Hello, am I good? Yes. Oh yeah, thank I think that's a great passage. The question to me, I guess, is, it sounds a lot like, um, I guess the question is of individual violence versus organized group violence. So in this example, it's Douglas talking about his own individual act of violence, which was useful to him to assert himself and achieve dignity. But I guess the question is, it sounds a lot like a a little bit in this context today of like a father telling his son that he needs to fight back against a bully. It's like, what does individual violence really achieve? I guess is the so the question is more like uh, organized the capacity for organized violence to achieve ends versus individual just kind of punching back. I guess is the if we're talking about violence generally. Uh, sorry. Well,
0: I- No, I'm sorry, you made a point. My reaction to your point is, there is a, a political fact and there is a personal fact. He calls this the turning point in his life as a slave. That's the turning point. And whatever quote unquote it accomplishes at a political level, it was clearly, by his reckoning, very important on a personal level. And the, And so I think one has to make the distinction and also to ponder whether that act of violence was necessary in order for him to restore his sense of person. Go ahead.
4: Okay, Andrew, you're up next. Am I, I muted? Yeah, you are okay, unmuted. Thank you. Great. Um, I just, I think, just so everybody knows I'm going in 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 sequence of phrased hands. So that it, okay. that's
7: in this particular situation, I think it was necessary for him, even though. Even if that option isn't necessarily available to other women or even most men in this situation, and I, I say this because you bring up Martin Luther King in the kind of and the kind of comparing him to Malcolm X in that way, but Martin Luther King was only able to do what he was able to do with the civil rights movement because of the Cold War. The world's eyes were on America, eyes of the third world, and having the police and and violent mobs beat up African Americans was very embarrassing to America, which is what forced out the federal government to step in to protect the rights of African Americans. If that wasn't the case, it wouldn't have worked. So, nonviolence in that case was really only available is not available to most people most people either. Um, and in the case of Frederick Douglass, especially in antebellum in the antebellum self, that was definitely not available. So I think in this case it was necessary because, and I think. Way back when we first had an older class about nonviolence, you kind of, we talked about this point, and this isn't like, this isn't a moral judgment or anything, but like the nonviolent act of like, of protesting the civil right and like that, that movement. And in some ways they're both forms of coercion. You're, You're trying to get to the person who's the aggressor to stop what they're doing and, or to at least assert some of yourself as a person who won't let, somebody just attack you and deny you of your personhood and they're both they're, they're both justified forms of coercion in this sense but the ultimate tactic I think is different but it's because they're different situations.
0: But I, I think I, I don't want to be the dead horse but Douglas at this point is not talking about the political efficacy of violence. He's talking about it as a matter of personal integrity and mental emancipation. The same thing if you've read the writings of Malcolm X, a lot of his criticism of nonviolence was his view that it was morally degrading and demeaning to allow yourself to be beaten and pummeled by another. He wasn't necessarily saying it's more politically effective to hit back. He was making a moral judgment and that any, and you'll excuse me, the sexist uh, connotation that no real man, and that's the way they viewed it back then. When I say back then, I mean Malcolm X's era. No real man would let himself be beaten without attempting to fight back. And Douglas has this line. Um, I did not hesitate to let it be known of me that the white man who expected to succeed in whipping must also succeed in killing me. That he had established that you are not going to hit me without a price to be exacted. Uh, anyone else? I'm like, I'm not trying to be, you know, woke here, but I would like to hear how some women react to this because it's clearly not an option available to your, so to speak, average woman for purely physical reasons. So yeah. how do you, how do you react to the claim that the only way to emancipate yourself is through some act of physical Retaliation.
6: The next hand is a woman with yeah. the number for a name. Uh 274537. My That's- name is Bonnie.
0: No, oh, you're Vanessa Redgrave. Don't kid me. Don't get I'm- me. You're Vanessa Redgrave.
12: I don't know. I, I couldn't hear that.
0: I said you're Vanessa Redgrave. It's obvious. Oh, oh. <laughs>
12: Well, um, I, I'm not used to speaking up, but, um, I just had an idea that I'm willing to say, uh, not knowing whether it's a correct reading of what you're asking for, but it seems to me that, um, after all that he'd gone through, he made a sac. he, he was ready to sacrifice his life for his, um, uh, his belief for his ideals and, um, it wasn't really violence that he was, he was perpetrating. He was willing to just give up. He knew he couldn't beat the guy, but um, he wasn't gonna walk away and take any more beatings or any more suffering himself. And I think that's very courageous and heroic. And it probably gave him a real boost of, you know, personal pride, not the kind of ego pride, but just, a feeling that I can do something.
0: Well, I happen to think that's a wonderful comment, which hadn't occurred to me. Your point being, if I can restate it, your point being that the violence itself was incidental. It was the fact that he was willing to risk his life that was important in his transformation. Is that correct? Am I, uh, Monica, am I correctly interpreting you?
12: Yes, you are.
0: Oh, thank you. Listen to what I say, Monica, that was really a very subtle point. That never occurred to me. Absolutely never. I was so fixated on the physical struggle that to say the violence was incidental to the commitment he was making to either suffer death or do something about this situation anybody else uh and feel free to comment on your fellow folks on zoom
6: katano albuquerque
4: yeah first of all i would like to apologize for my english I'm not a I speak very much English, but uh, I think um, he's talking about the right to self-defense, which is uh, something natural um, to the to every human being with rights. And he being in a situation where he doesn't have any rights, I think when he uh, acts on, on this right, he... He got this this um, this feeling of emancipation.
0: I'm listening to every word you're saying, and I'm trying to think it through. Is he simply saying it's a right of self-defense, or is it also a necessary passage to his? mental and moral and spiritual emancipation. I think he's saying more than he's exercising his right to self-defense. He's also saying it was a necessary step in his transformation as a human being. Okay. Well just take a pause. Is there oh look, there are other people. So Nate, uh, call on the others.
6: The next person that had his hand up was Teo Aluko. Thank you. Um,
8: the way he described it, the violence was not premeditated. Um, but and was and was natural giving given everything that had happened. Um and not only, to my mind, did it sort of give him this mental emancipation and their realization that this white man was really just a man, no better and obviously no stronger than he was, um, and the realization that he could fight for himself and when he let it be known that he would he was prepared to die i think there was another realization that he maybe i am putting in his mind that he didn't mention the fact that if he died he represented the loss of uh, whole economy that rested on his shoulders he was he, he as a, a, a unit of production was lost forever and that as much as the loss of of the overseer's reputation was as important to him being left alone uh, thereafter and i would suggest that That kind of realization that direct action, be it physical violence or any other kind of action, um, labor action, where you know that you are causing your employer or your owner economic hardship, that in itself gives one strength or the employer uh, gives them, uh, uh, makes them fearful. So um, I don't recall that uh, in his time, I mean, he, uh, Douglas himself called, uh, encouraged mass uprisings, uh, but his disciple Paul Robeson certainly did so in that the power of people acting together is is almost insurmountable and i would also argue that that is the one thing that women being less physically strong uh have at their disposal too: the 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 act of working together which they seem to do more readily than men do
0: i want to hear on a few more people because otherwise move
4: on too quickly so let's hear from a few others hello monica hang Um, on yeah
0: unmute her
4: hang on one second see if you can unmute yourself you should be able to unmute yourself now yes yes now we can hear you
13: hello well there is the small matter of the root maybe if women had That root, maybe they would have mastered the same courage.
0: (laughs) I I never, I never understood why he told the story of that root. But you think and root,
13: root is italicized.
0: I know, (laughs) and and
13: you think there is a certain element of magic. You you needn't, he goes to his friend and his friend says, I can't really help you, but I can give you a talisman or a fetish. Mm-hmm. And this will help you. Um, that's a, a bit curious, I think. Well, uh, <laughs> nevertheless, it's, he, it's, well, it's a bit difficult to understand how he masters all this strength. He's, he's been beaten to practically an inch of his, de- of his life, and he masters all this strength. Not that I'm disputing what he's saying. It is absolutely, I think it is a fact that he did indeed physically rise against his enslaver. Uh, but I think there is a certain amount of literature involved here too. And that makes the argument all the more powerful to my mind. I believe very much in literature. Um, So, yes, I think that the only option that was open to him for intellectual emancipation and for his, recon- for his conquering his dignity, because it's not even a question of reconquering, because he's born into slavery. So the only option that was open to him was to strike back, as, as simple as that. And of course, it raises other questions about armed struggle, because this is the first instance, as it were, of armed struggle. Now, in some cases, armed arms struggle is absolutely justified and it, and it uh, conquers. There have been slave rebellions uh, where a, a number of slaves have risen up. There is a very beautiful Cuban film called La Ultima Cena by Umberto Solas that talks about, that does a mise en scene and, and talks about the um. Uh, a slave rebellion in Cuba. Um, in other cases, as um, it, it all depends on the con- conjuncture, on the conju- conjuncture. Con- yes, no, uh, on. No, sorry. No, go
1: ahead. Go ahead. No, go it
13: ahead. depends on the on. I, I have to say it in French, and I can't pronounce it in English. La conjuncture, the conjuncture. The context.
0: Yeah, I I get it. So I want to ask, I want to repeat a phrase you just used. You said it was the only option available to him to get back his sense of person. Okay. There are two questions that obviously, that to me, come to mind. I'm going to ask one, but then I'm going to ask, right after I ask the question, I'm going to ask Steve, uh, Stephen Wallace to play something. I'm surprised that nobody in this very woke age, nobody volunteered the opinion. Not that I agree with it. I'm just saying I'm surprised that nobody volunteered the opinion that this was a kind of macho posturing by yeah. Douglas and that it's um it's so to speak outdated and obsolete this notion that you can only regain your manhood by beating up and physically afflicting your foe uh, I'm right. not sure if it was political correctness that prevented anybody from saying that because it's do, Douglas. Do, 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 do. Okay, I'm going to to allow you to come back to it. However, I'm going to ask, before we come back to it, uh, I want to ask Steve to just play that one minute. Uh, This is a scene from, it was a commonplace scene during the civil rights movement in the United States. And my purpose for showing this is to ask the simple question, is what these folks did, any less personally heroic and courageous than what Douglas did. So go ahead, if you'll play, it's only a minute.
5: Young people, especially students in predominantly black colleges, were inspired to move against the injustices they saw. In the winter of 1960, they began a series of sit-ins at segregated lunch counters in a dozen American cities that refused to serve African Americans. get out of here!
8: We'd never gone down this road before, so there was some concern about what
5: could happen or what would happen. A manager would come out and say, we're just not going to serve you, and uh, you're best getting out because we're going to call the police. It mean, was always the uncertainty of what would happen, and you just
8: just stay there and you keep your eyes on the prize. You feel the pain, but you you don't become bitter, you don't become hostile, and you sort of lose yourself. You forget about your own circumstances, and you become involved in the circumstances of others. But we were committed to the philosophy and to the discipline of nonviolence.
0: Okay. Now. Here becomes we commence the parsing. That means the analyzing. Let's start with the first question. What do you think, Douglas Frederick Douglas, would have thought of what they did? You have now read a large passage from Douglas, which conveys a philosophy of life. What would he say to that? little video that we just saw. What is your opinion? Let me start with Miriam Dominguez. What do you think Douglas would say? Let's start with Miriam. What uh, does-
2: I don't know. It's a difficult question because uh, he had nobody else with him. He was on his own. He was being brutalized. And I think it's very easy for a person to say, oh, what's." being nonviolent of course is the best thing but uh if you're on your own sometimes like he was it in my opinion he was reacting to the brutalization of this man and uh standing up for himself but there was nobody else with him probably if there was a group with him he would have reacted differently but on the other hand there was no reasoning with this man um there if he would no, have sat there was no
0: reasoning with him. the people who opposed the the uh, folks in the video I, I guess the question I'm asking Miriam is and it's already come up with Monica how integral do you think the violence was to Douglas's emancipation.
2: At that oh, point, it was about... his only means Right, to... go ahead, I'm listening. At that point, it was the only recourse he had to uphold his dignity. I don't think that at that point he could have what do you sat have
0: down told, and- Would do he have told the people in the sit-in, no, you don't sit there passively while you're being pummeled, you turn around, come what may, you risk the death. But part of preserving your dignity is you have to physically react, whatever the price might be in order to exact a price from those who are who are degrading demeaning Uh, time. much worse than humiliating you know what would he say now remember folks like malcolm x were totally opposed to this nonviolent strategy you've now read douglas what would he have said in your opinion uh let's ask jean philippe stone what do you think he would have said
10: thank you very much so uh, just keeping in mind a uh, further extract of the book I think it comes further on where Frederick Douglass and a few other of his slave of his uh, fellow slaves they tried to escape i think from uh, I'm not sure is it from Mr Covey if i remember correctly no. or is uh, no he's
0: back to his old slave owner
10: then yeah back to his old slave owner well there i mean it was a form of not individual but organized resistance in that case they were caught i think there was there were suspicions on Frederick Douglass's part and on his comrades as well. I think was it was it Sandy as well. They think they that he might have ratted them out. I think that was the that was the uh, that was the passage. I mean that was a form of organized resistance. They stayed together in the prison cells. They they marched through the streets, being hurled, having abuse hurled at them, and I mean I, I think ultimately Frederick Douglass would have approved because I mean that's. It's it's a higher form of Wait. resistance. It's a higher form of resistance in a way compared to the uh, to the moment there that he had with Mr. Kobe compared to the altercation. I mean that's it's a different form of resistance, but it's more it's more organized. It's more, uh, it's it's not just the individual. It's 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 more. It's more.
1: Uh, Mr. Stone,
0: you know. I guess my quarrel with you is mm. my quarrel with virtually everybody this evening. Mm -hmm. You're looking at it from a point of view of political efficacy. It's Mm -hmm. a higher form of resistance. It's a lower form. It's collective. It's individual. I didn't see in this passage that we read that Douglass was making a statement about effective versus ineffective forms of resistance. He's making a statement about mental emancipation, moral emancipation, spiritual emancipation. And so far as I could tell, with the exception of Monica, whose words I do take to heart, it does seem to me that he sees the actual physical resistance as being essential to his mental emancipation. And with that in mind, I am skeptical, I suppose, that Douglas would have approved of this tactic that had been adopted, not on the question of whether it's politically efficacious, effective, but simply that it was m- mentally and morally, if I can use the expression and you'll forgive me, mentally and morally emasculating, to sit at that counter and passively accept those blows. So what does Mr. Delio Fernandez think?
14: Good evening. Uh, uh, well, when I w- was reading through the, the, the passage and uh, following along, I, I felt the of the savageness of the of of whipping a fellow human and i asked or not that i asked i i say where where does that come from uh that savageness of uh, one human uh towards another the brutality um i know in christianity you turn the other cheek uh but you had the Inquisition and under with the Protestants, uh, if I'm I, I'm probably mistaken, but maybe not, uh uh a lot of the 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 Nazis were 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 uh I don't know if they were Protestants or or or, uh, yeah, they, they were Protestants, I believe. So that's what, that's what, what I was thinking. Uh, where, where does this brutality come from? What's the root of this? And I believe, uh, uh, Douglas had every right or not that he had every right, but it, it's just natural, uh, for any human, for their dignity, to to uh, naturally and spontaneously uh, 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 defend and uh, yourself in in a situation of this like this, and uh, I uh, I'm were surprised the people, that uh, were the
0: people sitting in there at the counter in the video that we were just we just watched were they lacking in personal dignity?
14: Uh, were they lacking in self dignity I, I well i'd have to be placed in the situation but just looking at it i've seen that video before and 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 looking at it 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 does uh it does uh, get my heart beating uh but do
0: you feel that they I, were, uh, lacked a certain personal dignity so Pato, what do you think
14: no, no, they, 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 they Didn't lack dignity, no. But I don't believe uh, once you be you should place yourself in that situation without uh, thinking of reacting uh, to it in another form.
0: Let me move on. So here, what do you think? Were they lacking in? What do you think Douglas would have thought? What would be his judgment?
15: I think he would have been. Proud. He would have seen a lot of himself and those people. Um, I agree with the earlier comment. I mean, I actually, well, I do think the 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 physical act of what he did was wrapped into what happened. I, I don't think I can separate it from that, but I mean, I'm reading, you know, late lower on. I mean, it said, uh, you know, a bold defiance took its place. You know, cowardice departed. A bold defiance took its place, you know. Yeah. I might remain a slave in form, but the day had passed forever when I could be a slave in fact. And I think what happened is like fear. Yeah, you know, I think it just disappeared in him. Um, and I think that's also true of many of the nonviolent uh, activists during the civil rights movement. Uh, and in fact, it's not like Douglas, you know, beat this Mr. Covey to death or something. He he resisted him to the extent, he physically resisted him to the extent that was required to keep his own body safe um so i don't i i it's i i find this conversation fascinating because this is i i didn't read this passage as him uh being in favor of violence you know promoting it that way i i just think there was something like he just i think somehow the fear that comes along with being a slave somehow just Evaporated, and in, and when that is. happened, like some like a, a an, an in some some internal like light or freedom just expressed itself. You um, know,
0: one of the wonderful things about teaching, and I mean this, I'm not a bs'er. One of the wonderful things about teaching is how much you learn from listening to people. Um, Mr. Patel has now added another element to the mix. He said it wasn't so much the violence that was emancipatory for Douglas; it was the loss of fear that he no longer, he no longer felt afraid. And in that sense, if you put the accent, that's one of Cornel West's favorite words, if you put the accent not on the violence part, but on the emancipation from fear, then you can easily imagine if that's how you see it, you could easily imagine Douglas approving of what the folks did in the sit-in, because they too said they were willing to lose their life in this struggle. And they had overcome their fear. So, if that's how you read the Douglas passage, then it's perfectly consistent with Douglas approving of what the civil rights resistors did during the civil rights movement. Now, there was a person named Anton. Who took grave exception to the notion that there was anything dignified at what the folks did who resisted nonviolently. Where is Anton? Can you Anton, can you identify yourself? Hello. Okay, go ahead, Anton.
16: Well, simply, I'll put it this way. Um, uh, these people in the sit-ins are, exposing themselves to, uh, just abuse, um, simply putting themselves in a position that is vulnerable in order to be abused. And, uh, so it's, it's, you know, people kind of putting themselves in a position to be as defenseless as possible. It's not like they're, you know, how in the U S today, uh, many people will arm themselves when they go and protest. Um, they make sure they can't be abused while they are, you know, trying to make a point. So in that sense, they are, uh, putting themselves in a position to be to lose dignity. So to be protesting and completely giving up their dignity, if um, that makes sense.
0: Of course, it makes sense, and um. I think he has a very interesting point there. I feel like from everybody, I'm learning something new. And it's really a revelation for me, so I'm very appreciative. Uh, as Mr. Mulhern said earlier, one of the strategy of the civil rights movement was to get yourself abused on camera so that you can draw sympathy from people outside the South in the United States and also indignation around the world. And now Anton makes, I have to say, a compelling point. He says there's something undignified about trying to create a situation that you, in which you are maximally abused. Because the more abused you were, the more sympathy you got. And that was the strategy of the civil rights movement. That was Gandhi's strategy. I've written a little book on it. That was Gandhi's strategy. The more you got abused, for Gandhi, he didn't even care about getting beaten. He wanted he wanted his followers, the Satyagrahis, he wanted them to get killed. He said, that's the only way you can arouse sympathy and pity by getting yourself killed. And now Anton makes a very interesting point. How can it be dignified? If your aim is to get yourself maximally abused? Would anyone like to answer him?
6: Well, the hand's up right now. Does anyone want to answer him if you put your palm up? I see Anthony McCarthy wants to.
1: Okay,
0: I know Anthony McCarthy by name. Mr. McCarthy, go ahead.
6: Uh, if you would unmute
11: him, yeah. Hi, can you hear? Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think I have some sympathy what Anton said. Um in the sense that the you there's a sense in which you you could say that unlike douglas these characters are instrumentalizing themselves in order to sort of bring on bad actions from others to to make a further point and it seems to me there's one i mean one possible problem with with that unlike the douglas case is is you're possibly inviting um, abuse, wicked actions upon yourself, which yes. is, and it's bad to invite that from others. Uh, whereas in the Douglas case, the, the guy is literally attacking you, you're using sufficient force to resist. So it doesn't have that planned, instrumentalizing nature. And that seems to be. Um, a problem with dignity, but then I think the word dignity needs to be unpacked because there's different kinds. It seems as though there's a kind of basic human dignity that Douglas is defending. And then there's being abused, which offends your, uh, as it were, your social dignity, the dignity people recognize and is elicited from others in their dealings with you. And that's not necessarily the same thing. So it seems as though you should never undermine your basic human dignity through your actions but when it comes to social dignity maybe the rules are a bit different if if you're making a wider point
0: i'm going to ask you folks uh, to kindly not uh, i'm not multi able to multitask as it's called so if you have a point to make instead of writing it out just raise your hand and say it Uh, because I can't do this. It's like with my students, I don't allow any electronic devices in the class, I refuse to compete with uh, cell phones and laptops. The only technology you're allowed in my class is a pad and paper period full stop. I I just can't I I believe in concentration, Uh, concentrating what people have to say because it's a way of showing respect to them. So if you have something, just raise your hand, and let's all hear it and debate it. So we have Monica, and we have. Let me go back to Helen because you haven't participated apart from reading. Go ahead, Helen. I've got.
3: Can, right. Yes. I've got to, to, two points to make briefly, and. Um, And it's going to sound as if I'm contradicting myself, I think. (laughs) But um, the first point, I think Douglas was right to do what he did. Um, It worked for him at that time. In those circumstances, it was right for him. Um, And he inspired other people on the day. Because there was Bill that came along and you know defied the 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 slave holder by by saying no to him when he asked for for him to be you know
0: to that, help him that's a great point which again I missed
3: and then there was a woman as well after Bill, and she got beaten for it i don't I, i'm not sure we got to it in this piece or it wasn't in that piece but in in the in douglas's actual writings there's i can't remember her name a woman slave that actually got beaten um for for not in for not helping um so they were inspired however and this is where i'm going to sound as if i'm int- uh, contradicting myself um I don't think that violence, that, well, in those circumstances at that time, it was right for him. And as Bonnie said, he was prepared to die for it. And it could have turned out differently. And it could have ended up at the whipping post each day, or even worse. Um, But here's where I'm going to contradict it. I... Right, there's a, a doctor Gabo Maté. He's a um, a child psychologist. Among he's a, a, a you know a, a, he writes books and things. Um, and I've heard him talk about a little girl who was getting bullied. This is before preschool, when she was you know four or five, getting bullied by other t- kids in the neighbourhood, and she went home to her mother, and in tears, you know, and da-dee-da, da, da. and her mother said, there is no room for cowards in this family, and she sent the little girl back out to fight it out. Now, that little girl grew up to be Hillary Clinton, Um. And I think there is, in its different circumstances, obviously, but there is a good argument. I used to run a taekwondo club, you know, and I used to tell my little students, it's okay to run away. And they have to, there's no shame in running away, you know. It depends on the circumstances. And I think Hillary Clinton grew up, to be, you know, somebody quite, um, well, not somebody that I, I, in in terms of the people, you know, the the deaths that she's caused and things, I'm going to say it outright. And I don't care, you know. Um, I'm going to
0: shut up though now, because I've (laughs) spoken enough. One last word from Monica. Well, look,
13: we're talking about a struggle. First of all, had not Douglas responded to his enslaver's attack with a counterattack, he wouldn't have lived to tell the tale. This is what? Two, in the, the matter of the civil rights of, of the um, video that we saw, It's a question of strategy and tactics in a struggle. It's not really on, yes, of course, there is a moral issue, but it's a confrontation. And you have to find the best tactics and master the best strategy to win the struggle. So, dignified or undignified, I think that in that particular case, I would say that the means of making oneself vulnerable justifies the ends of maybe winning the struggle.
0: But what if the means entails personal, look. um, I
13: can't hear you.
0: I'm just going to put out a comment. I'm not going to answer it. Um, Helen just made a point. She made the point that Hillary Clinton was determined or was told not to succumb to bullying, that you have to fight back. And at the end, she turned into a royal bully in her life. She did, she turned into a very vicious human being. So with that in mind, as everybody who is in politics will tell you, be it a Gandhi or be it a Trotsky, they both say the same thing. There is an integral relationship between means and ends. Now if you choose certain means, it's going to compromise your ends. And with that in mind, if you choose a means that's personally Let's say it's politically effective, but it's personally degrading. It's going to affect the ends that you achieve. Gandhi likes to say, like to say the relationship between means and ends is the same as the relationship between a seed, excuse me, a seed and the tree. That you see in, in the seed, you already see the tree. And it's the same thing with the means and the ends. If the means are personally degrading, it can't help but contaminate the ends, which was why Gandhi was categorically against violence, because he wasn't categorically against violence. That's untrue, factually incorrect. And I wrote, as I said, a whole book trying to demonstrate that's not true. But he certainly believed that using violence is going to compromise the ends. And so I say to Ms. Monica, that in the same way, if in fact the means are morally, personally degrading, it can't help but also undermine your end, however noble, that end might be, so I think this kind of distinction between the moral aspect and the political aspect is slightly artificial. the nice. the means and ends is like the seed and the tree, I think
13: Can I say something. Can I say something? Yes. Well, I think that we're we're talking in these broad terms that are ahistorical. We need to. There are particular circumstances for particular struggles. Yes, the, the end, the means might contaminate the ends. And maybe Miss Clinton, Miss Clinton is a bully because she was told not to be a bully. But everyone is not the subject to, of the compulsion to repeat so it's it's a very I think I think we have to uh, take each case on its for its own merits. the oh. French Revolution would the French Revolution have not happened, <laughs> you know, if we just uh if there wasn't the burning of the Bastille and the march of the people and so forth or the Russian Revolution, or any revolution?
0: Okay, I'm going to, I'm I'm not going to answer that because first of all, there is no simple answer. And secondly, because uh, you're a participant and I'm not Mr. Wizard, who's just giving answers. Uh, We have, we're already 15 minutes over, but I want to just, we'll go for just a little more because I want to ask one last question. We're going to watch now a scene, which is, uh, I think we can all agree that this scene in Douglas's autobiography is a climat- is one of the climactic scenes in his memoir. There are really four climactic scenes in in Douglas's life as he retells it. Number one is the fight with Covey. Number two is when he gets his freedom. Number three is when he meets with Lincoln. And number four, which we're going to do next week or two weeks from now, I'm not sure yet, is when he confronts, after slavery has been abolished, he confronts his slave owner on his slave owner's deathbed. A very dramatic scene. So those are the four climaxes. But we can agree this is certainly one of the climaxes in Douglas's life. He calls it himself, a turning point in his life as a slave. Now, I'm going to add, and it is dramatic. You know, one of the things I felt good about as these three wonderful readers were reading it is, I'm thinking to myself, they're great readers, but there's also not a dull moment. <laughs> this is really great literature, and it's riveting. So I want to ask one last question. It's a riveting scene. You can easily imagine it enacted on the silver screen and done with, uh, you know, done with skill by a good actor or actress, um, it will be a a wonderful sight to behold. I want to ask the following question. We're now going to see Martin Luther King, one of the climaxes in his own life. It's probably the most remarkable scene in the history of humankind. I believe that because Martin Luther King is going to deliver his own funeral oration. He gives this speech the night before he's killed. And it's clear from the speech he knows the curtain is coming down. It's over. And I want to ask a question. Which scene moves you more, Douglas or King? King, the apostle of nonviolence, who, it must be said, it must be said, he truly believed in it. This was not instrumentalizing in the words of Mr. McCarthy his belief in nonviolence was deeply felt, heartfelt to the core. About that, I don't think there can be any dispute whatsoever. The man was true to his word. So let's hear, it's a long speech, but we're only going to hear the last two minutes of that moment which I consider the greatest speech in all of recorded human history. Go ahead. But we'll only hear the last two minutes. Just bear in mind, he's in Memphis, the most oppressed of oppressed, the garbage workers, the sanitation workers are on strike. And he's gone to Memphis to support the now remember King comes from the class black family. Hing has a doctoral degree. Hing comes from an elite. And he now goes to support the sanitation workers, the garbage men in Memphis. Go ahead.
17: All we say to America is be true to what you said on paper.
1: <laughs> if I
17: lived in of the freedom of speech, somewhere I read, of the freedom of press, somewhere I read, that the greatness of America is the right to protest far right. And so just as I say we aren't going to let any dogs or water hoses turn us around, the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. My eyes have seen the glory of the coming
1: of the Lord. Um,
0: (laughs) You know, I just finished reading a new biography of King. It was a very poor biography, very badly written, very poorly researched. However, one thing comes through in maybe unintended ways King was the most ordinary of persons when you read about his life. It's the enigma's enigma, the conundrum's conundrum. How a person who seemed just so ordinary, so run of the mill, could rise to such spiritual moral heights it's so breathtaking. You could see at certain points, and you should watch it on your own, just Google Martin Luther King Memphis, M-E-M-P-H-I-S, Memphis last speech. You could see he's holding, he's struggling to hold back the tears. Because he knows it's over. Um, mm-hmm. It is. Uh, is that not a lot more stirring in terms of the soul of a person than Douglas's fight with Colby
1: <laughs> no
6: does nora keller have an answer
4: yeah uh, can we un? yes yes we can at long last
18: (laughs) all right uh all right (laughs) um yeah i mean um i don't know i found both very moving um you know i think it's sort of interesting here people focus on the um very specific like sort of fight with kobe um but douglas uh pretty quickly afterwards makes a point about the fact that he understood um that the result of this might be uh you know basically being beaten to death um, for raising his hand um and you know i think in that he was willing to sacrifice himself um and i think yeah he understood that in the moment he might die (laughs) um and actually expresses like sort of shock that that didn't happen. And um, that isn't something he expresses with any sort of like weakness. Um, And so, yeah, I think it's um, for any of these folks, it's not necessarily about like how the defiance is expressed that, uh, you know, I think was so changing for Douglas or is so moving as we listen to Dr. King or watch the folks at the lunch counter. It's it's that the, uh, you know, the defiance is being expressed at all and that, you know, they're all of these men are and women are asserting their humanity, um, against their oppressors. And, you know, ultimately it's like these different tactics, but I think the greater act is sort of the same. Um, and I think the way that Douglas tells this story is very personal. Um, you know, ultimately these are, you know, uh, people expressing, sacrifice and bravery and um I think they would all understand and empathize with this and see that the it's sort of all the same struggle and
1: um,
18: so <laughs> uh, that's my sort of non answer that they're they're all they're all very good
0: <laughs> well I would just want to comment uh, that King begins by discovering Discussing the political issue, which is an injunction, was uh, put on the uh, right to organize a protest in Memphis. They were going to go on a protest demonstration. There was an injunction put on it. But in line with what Nora just said, uh, the king, at the last part of the speech, or the last minute—it's actually a long speech—but the last minute, it's also a very personal statement. He's not talking about the political struggle in its, you know, concrete, namely, uh, a, a, a strike, a demonstration.
5: It's—he's
0: going to die. He's only 39. He's got, I think, six kids, five kids. And uh, he he had lost, by the end of his life, he lost all his supporters. They all abandoned him because he came out against the war in Vietnam. And the fear was that Lyndon Johnson, who was the president at the time, would punish the civil rights movement because King was coming out against the war. And that meant punishment, meant money. The war on poverty it was school back then, the war on poverty. So he lost all his friends at the end. He was a very lonely man at the end. Um, and now it was the end. He wouldn't have been tearing up in those last in that last minute, if he didn't know, this was his last speech. So, in line with what Nora said, I would agree that these are both very personal moments. I have to say, but obviously, you know, my opinion is just an opinion. I recognize it was more than just a fight for Douglas, and you have all really helped me think through it and see that it was not necessarily about the fight, it was about overcoming the fear, the realization that you have you're ready to die for something you believed in. And it's all true, and I have to see that. But that all being said, there's a kind of spiritual depth to um, the King that's just, it's just breathtaking, at least to me. Any else? Anyone else want to comment? Um, or who, anyone who hasn't commented, I, I see a hand up. I just want to give maybe somebody else. Kale since you read the last part of the Douglas, um, the actual fight, which moves you more? I'm just curious. Just curious. Which moves you more, the Douglas passage or the King's speech? Which moves you more? I'm just curious.
4: Who did you say? Tao. Can you spell the name for me?
0: Uh, from the the Nigerian
4: who read. I, hey, hello, time. Time. hello.
0: Which
8: moves me more? I I I think I I see dignity in both. Um, and I I mean I I. Struggle to think if I would have the dignity, the presence of mind to not strike out against those white um, uh, white people in Memphis, in where, wherever it was at the at the
0: Nashville, Tennessee,
8: Nashville, Tennessee, uh, and and you know I mean. Just, Capturing that on, on camera shows the brutality and the and the animalistic um, tendencies of those white people, um, contrasting with the dignity. I, I do see the, the dignity in it um, of of not you know choosing. Not to rise to to the violence that that occasion um, was 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 provoking, um, and then Dr. King, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. So um, I mean, but Frederick Douglass, I mean, I I, I feel. <laughs> In fact, I wrote recently about an incident from my school days here in England, where I was provoked to beat up a white boy, and he never talked to me in the way he used to talk to me after that. Um, so, each each of each situation calls for a, a different a different uh, tactic. It also depends whether you have. Reinforcements, whether you're on your own or not, Um, and if you're prepared to die or not. And one is reminded of Nelson Mandela, who whose speech Rivona ended with him saying, "It is an ideal for which I'm prepared to die." And the judge could have sentenced him to death, but didn't, and that could have been seen to have been a big, big mistake, but look what it did to the struggle.
0: Okay. Well, folks, I always consider it an excellent class when time goes by so fast. And this time for me, it was really wonderful. I know you have a comment, Monica. We're going to continue next. We're going to continue it. We only got. Yeah, go ahead. I
13: just have a tiny question. How did he know he was going to die the following day?
0: You know, look, that's a big question. It's not a tiny question. I would like you. (laughs) I'd like you to use your own judgment. Of course. People will say that's conspiratorial and the government had nothing to do with his death and how did he know that James were already would be there, blah, 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 blah. You use your own judgment. Was that or was that not a funeral oration?
13: It's hard to know because there was no follow-up.
0: When he says longevity has its place, but there are other things except life. I don't know. To me, that says he knew what was coming. I find it hard not to believe that. (laughs) See, that's the funny thing. Most people would find it hard to believe that he knew he was going to get killed. I find it in light of that speech, hard to believe that he didn't know he was going to die the next day. That was a funeral oration. <clears throat> but that's my that's my speculation, nothing more. Well, folks, we didn't hear today from Helen Watt, we didn't hear from Blyn Combs. We didn't hear from let's see, who else? Rodney. We didn't hear from a lot of you, but you know what Joe Lewis, the boxer, famously said. You can run, but you can't hide. Next week, I know exactly who I'll be calling on. So, so, so nice to spend a Sunday evening with you. And I, for one, am extremely enriched by this experience. And when I count the reasons that I'm sad that I will die, I usually say I'll miss reading at night. And I usually say I'll miss Coney Island. And now a third, I certainly will miss
1: teaching. So have a good night.
4: Bye-bye.